This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Wolverine 24-7 podcast, your audio source for all things Michigan football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Zach Shaw. Steve Lorenz here with me, talking Michigan's win over Rutgers 52-17. to It was a little dicey in the first half. They had their first first-half deficit of the season, I believe, 17-14. to And then the Wolverines outscored the Scarlet Knights 38-0 in the final two quarters. And Steve, you and I were talking before the show. I mean, you know, we could get into like the nitty gritties of like this or that, but this really felt like a very routine Jim Harbaugh coached Michigan blowout where Michigan maybe stuff to explore in the first half. But really, I just I just think it was not an optimal night for them. I mean, they were missing five starters due to injury. I think if the punt block isn't scored for a touch, if that play doesn't happen, I think it just kind of looks like a sluggish start, not necessarily anything alarming. There's little pieces here and there, but I think the the biggest takeaway for me, and I imagine it was similar for you, is that this second half showcase that Michigan has done the last few weeks, over the last four weeks, they've outscored opponents 100 to three in the second half. It's really showing Michigan, it's not just like a fluke, or like a, a statistical oddity. I mean, th- this is really like a part of their identity, these four-quarter game plans. And and I think the adjustments, we'll talk about Jesse Minter in just a moment, but you know the adjustments are there, and they're being presented in a way that the players can do it. But I also think there's a culture of this. I think there's a culture of this buy-in. I've heard after these games a few times now, players have cited all the training they did in the in the offseason with Ben Herbert and his staff kind of training themselves to last all 60 minutes of the game and not fade, not be tired, not need to come out. And I think the I think you're seeing a culmination of the culture, the coaching adjustments, uh, and also just like the talent competency is really starting to take over in the second half. And it, and it helps that Michigan is playing teams that I would argue they're better than. I mean, I don't think there's been a game this season that they weren't favored by at least a touchdown. You know, that that's a part of it. But at the same time, you're you're seeing everything that Michigan believes makes it a championship contender. You're seeing it lead to these good second halves. The depth, the talent, the physicality, the offseason training, the culture, and the coaching. And with that coaching, Steve, I think the first topic you and I are going to discuss here is Jesse Minter. As we start to get toward the end of the season, he's Michigan's defense has been pretty darn good all year. I think now, though, it's time to shift the conversation from Minter is taking over Mike McDonald's defense and doing a nice job to, hey, he might be the best defensive coordinator in the country right now. And and he certainly had talent to work with. But 
that was a national narrative all season or all off season was Aiden Hutchinson's gone. David Ajabo is gone. Dax Hill is gone. Longtime starters, Josh Ross and Brad Hawkins are gone. Vincent Gray is gone. Christopher Hinton is gone. And really, you know, Hutchinson and Ajabo and, and Hill were, were especially fantastic players, but Michigan's defense is better than it was a season ago. They're top three in pretty much every category. I'll read the whole list in just a second. But Steve, I want to get your thoughts on this. I don't think it was ever, I don't think you and I were ever among those people that were you know, quote unquote unsure about the defense. I think we, we had heard enough in the spring and the summer that we felt that this defense could be a better collective defense. But I don't know that I thought it would be this dominant. I think I predicted top five run defense unsure about the coverage and the pass rush. So Steve, your thoughts on Jesse Minter and, and also kind of keying it toward the main question we're discussing when Michigan is nine and oh, they're third in the country probably will be number three in the college football playoff rankings. And you start to look at, you know, the other teams and what they do. Well, Minter has got a pretty darn good case for the Broyles award assistant coach of the year. Because one, it's not like this is Jim Harbaugh's defense. He always has been, someone who delegates that defense to the defensive coordinator. And and two, I think Michigan's defense is not only statistically as good as any defense in the country, but it is also exceeding expectations, at least from the national perspective, with new starters, new contributors. And really, you know, I don't think zero-star defense, that was the line that Jim Harbaugh used this summer. I think there's a few stars that have emerged but you are seeing different players step up each time and it's different guys who are, who are kind of leading the charge. I mean, on, on Saturday, they only allowed 14 rushing yards, uh, but it was, it was a very collective group of players getting those tackles for loss, getting those run stops. It's not like it was the same player making the play every time. So your thought on, on the job Jesse Minter has done and, and maybe a little bit peaking just a few weeks ahead, obviously games to go, but at that Broyles award and and where he kind of stacks up in your mind in the country. I mean, yeah, he's got to be one of the top two or three candidates. That's what we said. Like, it's usually like a coordinator for a top five team. You know, that's why I said whoever's Tennessee's offensive coordinator probably by default is probably like going to be the favorite, I would assume. Uh, But I think Minter should be, should be right there for everything he's done. Yeah. I mean, the, the depth of it's, it really, it starts all, it starts up front. Uh, We talk about, you know, they lose Hutchinson and Ojabo, but it felt that, that like they had a chance to be a little deeper, particularly on the interior. And, and that has come to pass, uh, even with a surprise, not a really a surprise necessarily, but maybe a surprise in how good he's been so quickly. Even a guy like Mason Graham uh, stepping up and becoming a, a pretty major contributor for them. You know, but it's yeah, it starts with with Mozzie Smith, Chris Jenkins in the middle. You know, it's like no nobody's really been able to 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 really get any kind of consistent running game going with those two guys plug in the middle edge has been better than we thought it would be. It's been deeper than we even thought it would be. Yeah. Cornerback play has been really good. You know, I thought even on Saturdays, like they hit a couple deep balls. Like you watch those game, you watch a, you see, you look at the stats for Rutgers quarterbacks coming into the game and you think, how could their stats be like that when they're throwing passes like, you know, DJ Turner had perfect coverage. It was like, you know, so, I mean, I, I'm, so I'm not that down on, on the, 
inconsistencies in the coverage on Saturday either. I thought overall Michigan was fine. So the second half numbers really are what tell the story though. I mean, these are incredible numbers and I honestly, it's like, to me, it's, it's, it's opponent independent to a large extent, not fully, but these are like video game type defensive numbers. They're putting up in the second half against in-conference opponents, not the, hoop teams from the beginning of the year, which, I mean, they did that too, but like you're playing Penn state, you know, Michigan state teams that are competent offensively. I mean, Penn state's offense has put up some points uh, since they were in Ann Arbor uh, the last couple of weeks. So got to be one of the favorites for the award. You know, I think, yeah, the bigger question is, is has he been even an improvement off of McDonald? We saw teams kind of get away with tempo, against McDonald. I mean, that's how they, that's the 100% reason they lost the Michigan state game last year. I think teams have tried it a little bit. It doesn't seem like they've had as much success as teams did in the past. So uh, yeah, I think overall it's, it's, it's hard not to feel like this is an improvement. We know <laughs> the ultimate uh, fate will be determined in a few weeks, but to this point, you know, it's hard not to feel like also like the, just the development, and I don't know if that's a mentor thing necessarily, I, you know, because, I, again, I think the second half stuff really goes a lot to adjustment schematics, you know, like you talked about. But you're seeing player development, too, uh, almost everywhere. So, you know, I mean, even a guy, even guys have, have, you know, like Rod Moore's played really well the last three weeks after kind of maybe struggling a bit to begin the season. I, I'm wondering if maybe he just needed to get back to full strength and full health, but he's played really well. Uh, the last few weeks and uh, Will Johnson has stepped in and looked like a guy now too. you know, feel like they're comfortable with all three of those guys at cornerback right now. So, uh, and then, like I said, the, the, the defensive line as a whole, I mean, within the defensive unit, you might, might say that Mike Elston is sort of the MVP of the uh, assistants, uh, non-coordinators just with uh, the job that he's done. It's just, there is, there's so many different guys, that they can that they've been able to put out there and who have been effective at different points. So, you know, I think a lot of that uh credit has to be given to him there. So, you know, yeah, Michigan's defense, we it kind of like we talk about what the best case scenarios were heading into the year. A lot of those have kind of come true. You know, again, I think like we described the defensive line perfectly as far as the success is going to be built off of whatever the interior does. They'll create they can create more attention and give guys on the edge more chances. We've seen Michigan has recorded how many more sacks than at this point last year? Quite a bit, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it's and, like six tenths of a sack more per game. Right. I mean, that's a over a what nine game. You know, that's five what five and a half more sacks just about. So, you know, we wouldn't have thought they'd have more sacks as a unit at this point from last year. So, you know, just stuff like that. It just feels like the the best case stuff we laid out in the preseason has has come to fruition. Uh, so far it has and and I think you know one thing I was big on was there were there were players I knew were going to be good and Mozzie Smith Chris Jenkins DJ Turner Junior Colson I, I felt very confident that there was one or two players at each position group that we knew were going to be good where you see the best case scenario as a team result happen is when players like Makari Page have a breakout season or you know, I thought I think Michael Barrett, two interceptions on Saturday, but I think all season he has been. When you think about you know Michigan 
one of a guy who had 50 tackles last season, a Kai Hill Green returning starter, and Josh Ross. He, Hill Green's been out all season. Josh Ross was gone from a season ago. So Michael Barrett, veteran guy, I think, you know, finding a little bit of a role, he had to switch positions. He was a Viper. They said, well, they're not doing Viper anymore. And, and, and you know, some of those, he still does, does a few of those kind of plays. But to, to switch positions again uh, and be as effective as he has been this season, you know, real testament to, I think, the coaching that Michigan has and the schematics that Michigan has to find a role for him. Guys like Iyabioki, uh, certainly, I mean, that was kind of a gift Mike Helson got. I think he even described it as that, like he was excited that midway through fall camp, he gets, you know, a guy with, with all this talent, but also who hadn't played at a FBS level, let alone in, you know, a, a high power five level in several years. So I think there was, there was an adjustment teaching him the playbook. And I think ultimately that's what jumps out the most to me. Oh, one more guy, Mike Sainer still. I mean, how about that? You know, I think when we heard he was switching to the nickel role in, in the spring, I think that you and I, I mean, you know, I remember you covered him as a recruit when he was a, a Virginia Tech cornerback recruit. So I don't think there was skepticism that he could do it. I didn't think he would be doing it at, at an NFL draft level year one. So that's that's several players who I think uh, Michigan, to for Michigan to be a top three defense in the country, and they are. They're top three in yards per game allowed, yards per play allowed, points per game allowed, rushing yards per game, passing yards per attempt, passing completion percentage allowed, passer rating allowed, rushing yards per attempt allowed. I mean, you pretty much every defensive category, they are top three in the country. Not top five, not top ten, but top three. And I think that's a, that's a testament to getting so many – extra breakout players beyond the players that were expected to be good. And I think you can look at every single position and you can see, okay, the players who were supposed to be good have been good, but then there's also been other players who have stepped up. The other thing that, that where Minter's narrative might start helping is, is if the second half stuff keeps happening because yeah, I mean the numbers against Michigan state were ridiculous against Rutgers. Rutgers had nine drives in the second half. They had one first down. That's it. I mean, that's crazy. That's yeah, that is video game numbers because, you know, they're trying to mount a comeback and they can't even stay on the field at all. Whether it was an interception or a, or a three and out punt, uh, one first down in the second half. That's really impressive. Yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of the actual award component of this discussion. I think it, they, they, if they beat Ohio State, I think that's when the narrative starts. And, and that's, that happened last season. Michigan was in the, – everyone was excited about the season that they had had, but it wasn't until after Ohio State that I think you started to see the Joe Moore Award talk for the offensive line or Aiden Hutchinson Heisman talk uh, or, or you know Josh Gaddis with getting the Broyles Award. So that, that's going to be the differentiator, and, and that's fair, I think. Because in a similar vein, I think that game's going to end up being a differentiator for Blake Corum with the Heisman Trophy, switching to a different, potentially award-winning key member of this Michigan team's 9-0 and start. Yeah, Blake Corum, 109 yards, two touchdowns. It's It says a lot about what the kind of season that he's having, that that could be deemed by some as a quiet game. You know, that, that just speaks to the level of play that he's had right now 
through 10 weeks of college football and, and through nine games himself. He leads the country in first downs. He is tied for first in the country in touchdowns and points scored this season. So that includes kickers. He is fourth in rushing yards, six in scrimmage yards, and just really starting to produce at a level that that even the people who don't vote for running backs or don't think running backs should win the Heisman, it's getting a little hard to ignore because Michigan is winning while other teams are losing and Corum is producing in a weekend. I thought this weekend probably helped Blake Corum's Heisman odds as much as any he's had all season. And that's because CJ Stroud struggled. Uh, Hendon Hooker struggled a little bit. You know, you started to see some, some come down to earth games for some of the other quarterbacks that are in that trophy position. So Steve, we are not Heisman voters, but he, you know, Corum, I think, I think it's, it's becoming hard to ignore when he does it game after game. He has not faced another college football playoff contender yet, but I do think if Michigan beats Illinois and if Michigan beats Ohio State, you know, that's that's two other bona fide Heisman contenders in Chase Brown and CJ Stroud. I I think I think the narrative that Corum being the best player on maybe the best team in the country at that point, I, I think he ends up winning it. I think it's gonna come down to those two games and and he has to, he can't be like held to thirty yards in those games. I think Kenneth Walker, the third, kind of showed that last year. You know, he was he was probably maybe even a front runner, certainly a, a top two or three contender, and then was not able to produce against uh, Ohio State. And I think that kind of quieted his his run. But I think with running backs, I think you need a little bit of the narrative to go with because I think I, I think it's just hard to produce the numbers that maybe the old school running backs produce, thinking about when they would run the ball 30 times a game. But I do think Corum has put the numbers part of things together and now if he and his teammates can finish and go 12 and 0 I really think he's he's going to end up winning this thing because I think the quarterbacks seem to be rotating a little bit on who the Heisman trophy contender is each week. So I think that that if Michigan completes the narrative and Corum is you know still standing as as the key face of Michigan's offense, I think this is very much a Heisman trophy caliber season, you know, looking at the stats and everything. Your thoughts on Blake's season so far? Uh, I think what's becoming more impressive about it is that Donovan Edwards is also putting up some big numbers in the last, what, month, five weeks, right? So he's not, I mean, he has been getting the ball a lot. He's carried the ball quite a bit, but he's also like, there's another guy on his, at his position on his team that's putting up legitimate stats and he still has accumulated the numbers that he's accumulated I, I didn't really like, they showed the graphic during the game. I, I didn't really, you know, comparing past Heisman winners at running back, the numbers at that point, I mostly thought it was okay, but like including Reggie Bush, I thought was a little facetious because Reggie Bush, I think probably also had like six or 700 yards receiving at that point in the season too. I mean, it was, he was on a totally different level, uh, but yeah, it's hard. The, the fact is at this point, it's incredibly difficult to win the Heisman if you're not a quarterback. Uh, I just looked, and only Reggie Bush and Ron Dane have won the Heisman Trophy as a non-Alabama skill position player since 1999. It's only two guys in like 23 years. Wow. 
That's Devontae a good Smith. You look that up. I just did. Well, because I had a nice. hunch like Devontae Smith, Derrick Henry, Mark Ingram, all three skill players that went to Alabama. Otherwise, it's been straight up quarterbacks since outside of Bush since Ron Dane, which again, I mean, and you're talking about some guys that have had some major. I mean, you think about the year Christian McCaffrey had before he left. I mean, come on, didn't he beat, didn't he top Barry Sanders like all purpose yardage in one season? I mean, it's so it's a it's a become an award that's like they push the quarterback position so hard and uh you know I don't know this could come down to the game in Columbus you know I I mean I'll be honest I I, CJ Stroud was outplayed by Northwestern's quarterback on Saturday at least throwing the ball son of a former Michigan offensive lineman too yeah from from Davison who I believe is still in the state football playoffs this year they got a pretty good program over there but but I think they're going to give him every opportunity to win it because the video game, like Ohio State's always put up kind of video game stats in the passing game against lesser competition. So if they do win the bigger the bigger game, like a Michigan type situation, you know, it, it probably would put Stroud over the top. You know, I know Hendon Hooker is obviously still right there, you know, but otherwise, I mean, yeah, Corum's to me, he's at least locked up his invite barring a really rough finish to the regular season. I mean, he'd really have to struggle, but there's no indication that he's going to. Uh, so that's what I kind of said. Come, we, we said previewing the episode, the two things I think Michigan needed to try to do were lessen Corum's load, but also keep him in the Heisman Trophy conversation. I think they kind of did both. I don't remember how many carries he ended up having, but um, on Saturday he had 20. There you go. That's not too bad. I mean, that's, Less than it feels like he's had to take on in a few of the other games this season. It's his lowest. I is think it his lowest? I, yeah. I wondered if it was. It sounds it sounds low for him. So, you know, as long as they can kind of stay on that track until they go to Columbus, I think he's should have as good a shot as anybody at winning it. It's just a matter of, you know, which quarterbacks are also there at the end. Because, like I said, it just feels like such a quarterback heavy. Well, it doesn't feel like it is. It's been a quarterback heavy award for a really long time but I mean to be to be honest though and this is where you know it does it's really I thought Kenneth Walker I think we agreed especially seeing what he's doing in the pros now uh totally got robbed not getting invited to New York last year and this is gonna this will probably annoy people about the but like star Michigan running back I think has better chance than star Michigan State running back at not only getting to New York but maybe winning the award just because of the attention that a star Michigan player kind of brings to the table. So, um, I mean, look at Hutchinson last season. Yeah. He, what he, finish, he was second? not on the Heisman radar, I guess, like in all the different straw polls and stuff. And granted he had a great season. I'm not trying to suggest that it was unwarranted, but then next thing, you know, he's finishing in second place. I mean, he wasn't even going to go to New York probably like two weeks prior, but, but I think that Michigan Ohio state game, you know, he had three sacks in that game. And I think the winner of that game, especially when both teams are really good, like like this season and last season, whoever wins that game, I think the best player on that team is going to get maybe not an Alabama bump, but something similar. I mean, you think about Reggie Bush. USC was kind of the Alabama of the country while Bush was in school. And, and yeah, you know, Minard, Alabama... Minard won it the year before. Yeah, yeah. And, so... and I think Palmer won, didn't he? So... Yeah, it was kind of the same deal where 
okay, best team or top two or three team in the country, who's their best player? I mean, that, that it's is it short-sighted? Potentially, but I, I think also you do have to think, like, who who is the player of the year? And in college football, it, it probably can't be a really statistically great quarterback or running back on an eight and four team. Like it probably is going to be someone who, who carried their team to the championship. So yeah, I think that Michigan Ohio state game is going to decide a lot in, 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 and, and for Stroud too, because if Stroud beats Ohio or beats Michigan, I think some of the narrative of, Oh, he struggles against tougher defenses or, Oh, he struggles, boy, he's getting a lot of flack for the, for the weather. Uh, I actually, give him a pass for how hard that, that wind was blowing on Saturday. But I mean, he's not going to, he wasn't ever going to throw for 300 yards, but yeah. like I, said, I think the, the Northwestern quarterback had like a 75% completion percentage in that game. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 I give them like, yeah, I was never expecting him to put up, but he yeah. still looked, I don't know. I just well, feel there's, like there's been games where Northwestern's has... one in seven. They're terrible. Yeah. No, so. it's Stroud probably has the biggest, differential for like like he looks amazing when he's on but then it's like whether he's under pressure or the weather isn't great or or he's just facing a really good defense it does seem like there are moments where he just looks more human sure than other quarterbacks of his level I mean he's still a great quarterback I don't think I don't want that to get twisted but but in terms of like the other potential top five draft picks that we've seen over the years we'll we'll get into that because that has something to do with the game in a few weeks that we're going to be talking about so great segue we're going to hit a quick break on the other side we'll talk about a couple other things but i I think the big question you and i want to hit is is did this past weekend and the weekend prior change our perception of how the game might shake out in columbus in a couple weeks you're listening to the wolverine 24 7 podcast ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. And we're back. Thanks for waiting. So, Steve, you kind of smartly <laughs> queued us up for this this section of the discussion. But Ohio State, I think, has looked a little bit more human than than previously in the season. I I I don't think even Ohio State fans would say this is like I don't I don't think Ohio State fans would say that they've played their best football yet. 
I doubt Ohio State itself would say that. But Penn State, I mean, there was there was a time where pretty much everyone in the country was looking to see if that would be where Ohio State got taken down. And against Northwestern, I don't I don't think it, there was quite that level because Ohio State did seem to be kind of controlling the game. I mean, it felt like the safest 14-7 lead you'd ever see based on how Northwestern was was playing. But I think the last two weeks, I think you have seen Ohio State look very beatable. And and both were road games, uh, very different road games and road atmospheres, sure. But, you know, Ohio State, I think the one thing that they've they've often had is they don't just, like, beat teams on the road. They destroy teams on the road, you know, more so than Michigan does, more so than other teams do. Last two weeks hasn't been the case. So, Steve, my question is is just, has, have you changed how you are viewing the game? Because I think for a while it was viewed by even Michigan fans and certainly reporters as maybe a little bit of a David and Goliath or having to go into the lion's den with, with Michigan's drought in Columbus pretty well documented. Have you changed that perception yet, or do you need to see more from both teams? Uh, it's not definitely not a David Goliath type situation for sure. Ohio State's biggest advantage in this game is that it's in Columbus. Just like Michigan's biggest advantage is last year is that it was in Ann Arbor. So to me, that'll be the big question. I'd be fascinated to know what the Vegas line would be right now on a neutral field between these two teams because it did feel like the national perception shifted this weekend. I mean, it it just I've watched Ohio State quite a bit this year and they don't look that much different than they did last year, I guess. Um, that's the thing. That's what happens when you always have like elite receivers. It's like they just, they're, you know, Marvin Harrison Jr. is awesome. But like they had, they they threw out Smith and Jigba, Olave, and Garrett Wilson last year. I mean, all three of those guys are, you know, two or first round picks last year and both are putting up numbers in the NFL already. Smith and Jigba uh, might have been the best one on the team last year. So, I mean, yeah, what, the other big question right now is how healthy is he and how healthy is Travion Henderson going to be? I, I don't know the deal on Henderson. I'm assuming they may have just sat him out for precautionary last week. Um, I don't know exactly what's going on there, but Smith and Jigba, the hamstring has been a real issue. And we've, you know, we've seen players at Michigan and players, yeah, I mean, hamstring is one of those things that is, not easy to fully get rid of, you know. I mean, yeah, when, you can't it, just put it in a cast for no, because they well, you know, wasn't it what first quarter against Notre Dame it happened? Then the next time they tried running him out on the field, he he was gone within halftime of that game. I want to say, you know, it, it reaggravated almost immediately. So, you know, we're talking third week in November. The weather gets colder. It's not going to get any easier for him to play a full a full sixty minute game at full speed, right? So. Um, and to me that matters because he's a he's he was their best player in the game last year, maybe by a long shot. So yeah, it's just you know I think that my biggest question on on Michigan's end we've we've been praising their defense is, and I I really have to think a lot about last year, but like they haven't really played a great great offense yet either. Ohio State's going to be a lot better than without, with or without Smith and Jigba or even Henderson um, than what they've faced the rest of the year. So, you know, but 
I don't know, like intangible wise, uh, just uh, men- there's mentality. Just it definitely doesn't feel like Michigan is going to go into this game with that. I don't know. Just that fear. I, I don't want to say fear, but you understand what I'm getting at. Where when these two teams play, just it yes, felt like I Ohio do. State yeah. would just walk onto the field with a mental edge in the game, and I'm not convinced that that's going to be the case anymore. And that's the value of, of not just winning last year, but the way they won the game last year, I think is as important as them just winning it period, because not only did they win it while pretty much maintaining control, uh, they, yeah, they won it in a way where they, they out toughed Ohio state, they out physical them um, and pretty much wore them down over a four quarter game. And we've seen Michigan do that to pretty much every team they've played this year on both sides of the football. And you could argue maybe even more than they really did last season. It almost like feels like they've kind of built off of that and are really just beating teams up and wearing them down in the second half and kind of cruising to victory just, just on that alone. So yeah, my perspective's totally changed. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm picking Michigan yet. I just, because it is in Columbus and it's, it's a, really tough place to play for anybody uh but but no ohio state looks i mean if you want my i I think michigan should be ranked ahead of ohio state honestly um they probably won't be but i think just on the the body of work at this point i think they should be uh so you know they're they're pretty even in my eyes uh but the thing we talked about you mentioned stroud real quick i'll say to me he reminds me of just a lot of the quarterbacks that ohio state's had in the past where he is a top five NFL pick when he is sitting in the pocket and has enough time, you know, not only, but you know, he's, he has receivers that are getting open, but man, he makes some, some throws that not many other guys in the country, if anybody can make when he has time to do it. Uh, it's just, it's just getting him off of his. Do you want the pressure numbers him, real quick? Yes. You, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Clean pocket. He is averaging 10.7 yards per attempt. He's completing 73% of his passes. His NFL passer rating is 140.9. So there's your there's your top five pick. Under pressure, he is completing 40.5% of his passes, 5.6 yards per attempt, so half, and his passer rating drops to 73. That's that is sounds a lot like last year. It's, right. It's actually steeper, uh, granted, different opponents and stuff it's actually a little steeper than it was last season okay so you know the one the one thing i'm hanging my hat on right now if you think michigan is if you would pick michigan to win this game is history says the team that runs the ball more effectively wins the game and right now i would it'd be hard to argue that michigan doesn't have a chance a better chance to run the ball more effectively than ohio state does michigan's run defense has been awesome jenkins and smith are two of their best players and Michigan's rushing offense has basically shredded everybody apart. And I thought one of the biggest things watching Ohio State Northwestern last week, again, we're talking about a one in seven Northwestern team. This is not a Northwestern, a Pat Fitzgerald team that's going to win the Big Ten West. Not a trap of, game. Right? Not at all. Should not. Weather, I don't give a crap about the weather either in that indication, in that situation. Northwestern came on the second half, ran an exclusively wildcat offense for like nine or 10 plays and gained somewhere around 60, 65 yards off the get-go. Now, of course, they 
doffed it up. And I thought their play calling, that's a whole different story. I thought they really shot themselves in the foot way too many times, but you know, Michigan, Michigan offers an entirely different level of things that they'll, that Ohio state will have to account for defensively in the, in the run game. So, you know, that's the one that that's the one thing that I keep looking at thinking, man, I think Michigan's going to have, you know, a much better, it's one of those things. Everyone's still, there's the high off of last year's game. And I think a lot of people think, you know, they got them once it's going to be almost impossible to do it two times in a row, but just the way these teams are constructed and the way they're winning, you know, I don't, I think Michigan is going to have as good a chance as any team that's gone into Columbus since they, the last time they won there uh, and and to pull it out. I am starting to agree. I, I think you and I are seeing a lot of the same stuff where I think the fact that Ohio state didn't win in the trenches against Northwestern to me, that, that has to be music to Michigan's ears. Now I know Ohio state isn't fully healthy. I know that, you know, it's Northwestern. I mean, they're one in seven. You can imagine maybe they weren't trying as hard or they weren't as locked in mentally, but the wind cannot affect how you're blocking. I mean, but they, at the end of the day, Ohio state was, is way too talented to be losing the trench battle against Northwestern. And that's where Michigan, because I think Michigan knows if they're going to beat Ohio state, it's going to be in the trenches. It's going to be on the ground and it's going to be with that, that physicality because they're not going to out dazzle Ohio state. And that's okay. Last year it worked and Michigan has, has built a team that that's capable of pulling off such a win. But yeah, I think the, the, I think a big thing will be to see how their run game, Ohio State's run game gets gets healthy, maybe improves in the next two weeks. But yeah, over the last two weeks, I I see an Ohio State team that is not not good enough to escape the fact that the run game still matters. And it does. I mean, even when Ohio State was beating Michigan with ease, it was because they had fantastic running backs. They had NFL caliber offensive linemen paving holes. Michigan couldn't stop the run, and they Michigan themselves didn't have a rushing attack that could keep up. Now it does, and that makes it very interesting. I don't know if I would officially pick Michigan to, to beat Ohio State on the road right now. I think on a neutral site, though, I think I would pick Michigan right now without without necessarily. Lead, I would yeah. lean towards it. You know, I, I think just, the that, it, yeah injury report might be a part of it because. Yeah, when they're playing Northwestern, are they holding out players for precautionary reasons that they wouldn't hold out against Michigan? But yeah, neutral side, I think I would lean toward picking Michigan. It's a very interesting Steve. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right, though. I mean, yeah, everyone always points to their passing game, um, all the receivers they put out and stuff. But yeah, I always say the most important guys historically against Michigan have been like the Beanie Wells, Zeke Elliott, Mike Weber, like those guys who've just gone for 160 170 yeah you get sucked in then they're then then their receivers are wide open over the top and they're then all of a sudden they're in the blink of an eye they've put up 14 points in two minutes you know because Michigan hasn't had an offense that can sustain drives and keep their defense fresh and that's where that's another area where it's really changed is you know Michigan's winning physically but yeah they're keeping their defense fresh by not producing three and outs and uh, by running the football a lot more effectively. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that this, the trench play transformation in the last three years is very 
stark. And that's I say that knowing that Michigan has several starters on both sides of the ball on offensive line and defensive line in the NFL. But I feel like there's a little bit more of a collective punishment approach that is helping the Wolverines. I do agree with you. We'll say it twice just for emphasis. Michigan has not played an offense that is even comparable to Ohio State's yet. And, and that's not Michigan's fault. Big Ten seems to be having a a little bit of a big two, little 12 kind of season. But that that is one part where we talk about the defensive numbers. But if someone came and said, well, they haven't played anybody yet, wouldn't necessarily disagree with that opinion. Steve, anything else jump out to you from this Michigan-Rutgers game or the weekend in general? I think the one thing, you know, we, we didn't really don't really have time to talk about the passing game in depth here, but I, I feel like even though the numbers are bad, I felt like the passing game took a step forward. I think you saw there were three uh, deep ball connections, and I think there were a couple others that were right there, whether you know, it's just a matter of coming down with the ball. I think McCarthy could probably put a little more air on a couple of them, a little less line drives. But I think, you know, there were a couple that hit hit receivers' hands. And then I think the, the other thing is I think Michigan really started to sort out its red zone issues. And, and Rutgers, we mentioned before the game, probably the worst red zone defense in the Big Ten, maybe. But still, six touchdowns on seven attempts. And you saw, I think, a little bit of an evolution. You know, they were doing those run it up the middle, run it up the middle, run it up the middle. And and that clearly wasn't working super well, even though it led to two touchdowns. But then you saw, I think, in the second half, a little bit more of the passes. You know, I think I think Donovan Edwards got involved in the pass game. Cornelius Johnson became a part of, of that equation. Saw them maybe spread Rutgers' defense out just a little bit. So that that's maybe one other lasting takeaway that I'm hanging on to. Anything else jump out to you from Michigan's win over Rutgers? I don't know about you. I thought... On first glance, I don't, I don't, and I don't know about the pro football focus grades and stuff. Um, they haven't really seemed to line up, particularly up front with Michigan's level of play, but it, it felt like Jeff Percy played really, really well for his first opportunity. He graded super well on their side, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in, in your first real game action to go on the road at left tackle, uh, thought he played. I, I got to think if you're a Michigan fan watching that and saw it, it can, you know, I'm not the best. Texas knows guy, not the best offensive line evaluator for sure, but just on first glance, it looked like he played really well. Feels like a potential breath of fresh air there because there's a lot of questions about who's next at left tackle because, you know, Ryan Hayes has manned that spot for so long and we hadn't really seen any of these other guys. Uh, you know, it was kind of interesting to see that. So, yeah, thought he had a really encouraging first start and really could be a bright have a bright future for Michigan uh, at left tackle. So, you know, can't ask for much more than that, given, you know, the level of play Michigan's had up front the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, that was one thing that really, really stood out to me. Yeah, I, I guess technically the individual game grade wasn't great, but he was he was almost an 80 in the pass blocking grade, which is very – that's about as high as pro football focus goes unless you put up a, you know, all-conference type performance. But – you know, one thing with Percy to also keep in mind is that it wasn't filling in here and there. It was 83 snaps. So he got some serious experience in that game. And I thought the offensive line for being as shorthanded as it was really kind of dropped the hammer a little bit, especially in the second half. 
you know, against a team that it struggled against last season. And a lot of the same personnel, you know, Rutgers, they have a little bit more of a undersized, but, you know, stunt heavy defensive line. I don't think Michigan dominated the entire game up front, but I do think it, it once again, kind of like the defense, really wore down Rutgers' defensive front. So plenty to like. I mean, that's that's kind of how it goes when you score 52 points and win by 35 points. But Michigan continuing to impress and, and doing so in a lot of similar ways. That's why this podcast kind of shifted toward some of the national big picture discussions is I think – I think Michigan really just took care of business in Piscataway. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the prettiest start, but it was a pretty authoritative finish. And it was so dominant, in fact, that I think a lot of people stopped talking about the first half. I think at, at halftime there was there was at least a little bit of concern. I think college football fans have seen enough of those kind of games to know when a team is is just a little out of sync, a little shorthanded on the road, playing the wrong team the wrong night, and then Michigan just put up a 38 nothing margin in the second half. For Steve Lorenz, I'm Zach Shaw. This has been the Wolverine 24-7 Podcast. Lots of stories from the game and, and about what's next over at the MichiganInsider.com, Michigan.247sports.com. We also have some basketball coverage coming down the pipe as, as the Wolverines open their regular season tonight against Purdue-Fort Wayne. So be sure to check all of that out. This has been the Wolverine 24-7 Podcast. We'll see you next time. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance, avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown, new season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount Plus.